Go ahead and open up our Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 2. It'll be Philippians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. We'll be focusing on verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And I'll go ahead and begin. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, as we uh, celebrate Christmas this year, I would encourage you to remember all your brothers and sisters in Christ who are imprisoned around the world for publicly confessing their name or their faith in Jesus Christ, uh, proclaiming his name. Um, Right now, there are Christians being tortured and facing death sentences in places like China, Iran, and Pakistan. Uh, One of the places you see some of this is the American Center of Law and Justice. They're trying to prevent a a a couple of pastors from being executed in Pakistan uh, right now. It's important that we don't forget them because they are fellow citizens in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Uh, But we can also be truly thankful that the Lord has given us a land where we can worship Him in freedom where the government doesn't round us up, you know, all year long or at this time of year just because they hate Christ or simply because we're Christians. In fact, Iran has that, that traditional thing around Christmas where they love rounding up Christians and sending them into prison for a few weeks so they can't worship our Lord. It's a horrible thing. But we certainly, we cherish that freedom that we have and we want to hold on to it as tightly as we can. But unfortunately, with that freedom... Total depravity comes out. It, it shows itself in man. Uh, we see some of this uh, where it comes out on social media, comes out in public forums at this time of year, where they're, they're expressing their hatred of our Savior. Uh, one of the common sentiments is, even if the Christian God existed, I would never worship him because he is an arrogant God who sends people to hell for not telling them how great he is. I've heard that sentiment quite a few times, especially amongst atheists. But people that express this kind of anger, 
they don't know the true meaning of Christmas. Because if they did, they would see that Jesus demonstrated the greatest act of humility in all of human history. And then they would be bowing at Jesus' feet, praising him for how great he is. But in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul, while he was under house arrest in Rome, he sent a letter to the Philippian church. And he was teaching them about the humility of their king, Jesus Christ. And it was there that he, had the, he really emphasized three truths. The first is he reminded them of the dignity that Jesus set aside on their behalf. Second, he explained how Jesus humbled himself by condescending and uniting himself to humanity. And third, he described the exaltation of Jesus for the selfless acts of love that he committed. And as we consider these passages this morning, you won't find any arrogance in your humble king. So looking at verse 5 this morning, beginning at verse 5, Paul used two expressions to communicate the dignity of Jesus Christ before he took on human flesh. It says this, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, that phrase, form of God. In the English, that, the word form often conveys something outward, an outward appearance. You think about uh, professional ice skaters when they're judged. They're judged completely on their outward form, how they stay that way. Or those of you who are fans, fans of X-Men, uh, you think of the character Mystique. She can change in any form she wants, but her inner self stays the same. It's kind of that way. We think of form in that perspective. But Paul, he's not, he's not using the word form in that way. In fact, it's the opposite of what it's, that is what it's conveyed here. In fact, in the original, the word form refers to the inner nature of someone. It not, it's not the external. It's not the outward shape. And so if you, if you guys know anything about Plato, the famous philosopher, he, he believed that uh, what he called forms, uh, like truth, justice, and goodness. He believed these were forms, that, it, that they existed eternally, apart from anything in the material world. And these forms were the ideals that transcended time and space. And he believed that these forms were the true inner essence of all things. Well, Paul, he uses this term in a similar way. When he talks about Jesus being in the form of God... He is saying, by nature and by his essence, he is God. That's his point here. Jesus didn't seem to be God. He didn't become God. He always is and always has been God. That's his point. That's, that's the first expression he uses here to really belabor the point. Well, the second expression, it comes in verse 6. Look at our text. He says, who, being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So there's no doubt of what Paul is saying here. Jesus possessed equality with God. No one is equal to God except God himself. Through the prophet Isaiah, if you remember, God said, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. The point is God doesn't have any equals. And so, since Jesus possesses equality with God, he must himself be God. 
And so this is why the Apostle John, when he, he wrote, he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that is exactly what Paul is driving at here. It's he's laboring to explain Jesus' dignity before he takes on human flesh. But what throws us off a bit is a little phrase in the middle of verse 6, which says that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean by the word robbery? Well, some people, they use the word robbery improperly. For instance, uh, let's say you come home and you find your house, you know, has been ransacked, your stuff's stolen, and you get on the phone, you call the police. What does sometimes you say? You say, I've been robbed, come quickly. Well, that's not robbery. That's actually burglary. That's what it really means. You've been burglarized. Well, in distinction from burglary, where no one was at home, robbery is like taking something that belongs to you from that person or their immediate presence and against their will, and it's accomplished by means of force or fear. That's what robbery is. You think about uh, robbery, it's committed with a firearm or a knife. I mean, probably what comes to your mind is someone pulls a gun on somebody at a liquor store and they want all their money in the cash register. I mean, we think of that as robbery. But another part of robbery is what we call strong-arm robbery. It's where a criminal does not use a weapon, but he uses bodily force to grab the property from you. You think about a purse snatching. Someone comes up to you and they grab your purse and they gri- they're gripping it tightly and pushing you in a way as they pull that property from you. That's what, that, this is the sense in which grabbing something tightly. That's why he's using the word robbery here in this passage. And it's only in that sense. It's, it does not mean that Jesus took something that didn't belong to him. As if Jesus took on, you know, deity, but God somehow, or he took on equality with God, but somehow God said, well, that's not a crime. He's okay with it. That, that's not what it means here. It's focusing on that grabbing on, that holding on tightly. This is why some translators will say that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, what does that mean? Well, what Paul means is that Jesus did not grasp his dignity so tightly as if he were not willing to humble himself. He didn't grab onto his throne and tell the Father, no, I'm not going. No, he didn't do that. He said, Paul is saying that Jesus did not insist on holding on to all the privileges and benefits of being God. Instead, Jesus set aside his own dignity and that, that all those dignities that come with being God. Instead, he humbled himself. Well, now, how did he do this? That leads us to our second point. Look at verse 7. He said, But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. That's great. There's a great quote this week uh, going around on Facebook. I think some, of it, some people attribute it to Elizabeth Elliot, but as I looked it up, no one really knows where it came from. But she may have said it. And it says this, A thousand times in history a baby has become a king, but only once in history did a king become a baby. That's, that, that's an awesome quote. Because it really captures what's happening here. Because Jesus did not come into this world with all his mighty strength as if he were like a Roman Caesar entering Rome. No, instead he came by being conceived and born as a baby who was completely dependent upon his parents. 
Jesus, you think about this, Jesus, the King of heaven and earth, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he humbled himself by making himself of no reputation. A little, a little rendering of that phrase is Jesus emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. He also emptied himself is another way to describe it. What this cannot mean, though, is that Christ emptied himself of his attributes. As if Jesus ceased being all-knowing, all-powerful, or everywhere present. No, even when Jesus was a helpless baby boy in the arms of his mother Mary, he did not cease being God. Sadly, there was a German Lutheran theologian in the late 1800s named Gottfried Thomasius. And he taught that Jesus gave up some of his divine attributes when he took on human flesh. And there are some people today who still teach this heresy and why it's important to understand this. And this is a heresy because if this were true, Jesus would have ceased being God. Well, God can never cease to exist as God. It's impossible. God has always been God and always will be. But this is also dangerous because if it were true, it means Jesus was not fully divine. And if he wasn't fully divine, then his atonement was false. You remember in your catechism, it was by the power of his Godhead that he bore in his manhood the burden of God's wrath and so obtained for and restored to us righteousness in life. See, that Jesus being fully God is essential to the gospel. We cannot take it any other way. So it's very important to understand this, that Jesus, he did not empty himself of his attributes. So how did Jesus make himself of no reputation? How did he empty himself? Because that is a literal rendering of that word. Well, Paul is not saying that Christ emptied something from himself or poured something out of himself as if he was some kind of pitcher of water or something. That's not what's happening here. Instead, Jesus poured out all of himself, uniting himself to the human nature. It was all of himself, united to it. This is certainly a mystery. And there's only a certain way, a certain, so far we can go as human beings to really understand completely how this happened. But there's a great illustration that I want to read to you from an author to, under, to really understand this. It's an analogy that really drives on the point how important this is and what it really means for you. And, and to kind of set up the story in this way, there, there's a strong and wealthy king who rules a kingdom. And he has every privilege that you can imagine. But one day he goes on a trip through his royal city. And as he travels through, he sees beggars all over the place. And he goes home after his trip, but he can't get these beggars out of his mind. So he says to himself, I wonder what it would be like to be a beggar. So he decided that he was going to find out. Well, he moved out of his palace and into the poorest streets of the city. And listen to the rest of the story. It says, instead of wearing the fine clothing from his wardrobe... He put on the tattered, smelly clothes of a beggar. In every way he could, he acquired the day-to-day life and limitations of a beggar. Now, having taken on the restrictions of beggarly life, when the king was hungry, although he could have called for the royal chefs to bring him a choice meal, in order to live life as a beggar, he instead learned what it was like to go hungry or bake food. And when the king grew ill from the disease surrounding him, while he could have called for a highly trained doctor to attend to him, in order to live life as a beggar, 
he accepted being sick with little, if any, help for his illnesses. And when insulted and mistreated by mean-spirited passers-by, although he could have called for the royal guard to defend him and bring justice to bear against this cruelty, in order to live life as a beggar, he accepted with no retaliation the mistreatment and insults foisted upon him. I love that story. Because you see, the king knew that he couldn't genuinely live as a beggar unless he chose not to exercise his rights and privileges as king. The king would not truly be a beggar if he exercised his rights of royalty. Well, see, that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, Jesus Christ is your humble king turned beggar. He retains his full and complete deity with all the attributes of God But he chose not to exercise those attributes of being God. He chose to conceal his glory under the weakness of human flesh, under the weakest of all human beings, a servant. See, Jesus, he felt hunger. He was mocked and tempted. He subjected himself to all the evils of this world. Jesus could have called down legions of angels at any time, but he didn't. Instead, Jesus, it's in verse 8, it says, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You see, this is the eternal purpose or ultimate reason why Jesus emptied himself, why he chose not to exercise all his divine privileges, why he chose to make himself of no reputation. He took upon himself human flesh in order to obey the Father to the point of death. On the cross. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he said this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's awesome. That's awesome to think about this Christmas. The king of everything, the king of the visible and the invisible, he humbled himself and became one of us. Wow. I mean, really, this is the ultimate example of humility. There's no arrogance here. Jesus subjected himself to human mother and father who who he created. You think about that. Joseph and Mary were not perfect parents because no one is perfect. No human being is perfect. So Jesus had to subject himself to that. Jesus had brothers who I'm sure tortured him because that's what brothers do. I'm sure that he felt that. He had to put up with that. All the while, their brothers, you think about it, they were living with their creator that whole time. From all childhood, they were living with him. And and Jesus was living a perfect and humble life that entire time. From the beginning of the incarnation, I mean, he was sought sought out to be killed. Where many children were killed under the orders of Herod because they were looking to murder Jesus. Satan, he, he knew the significance of that truth, of, of, of Jesus' birth. That's why he stirred Herod to do this murderous rampage. He knows what's going on. The murderous intentions, in fact, of Satan and men, it didn't stop after that. Throughout his earthly ministry, how many people hated him? How many people insulted him? How many people sought to stone him? You see, this was a, this was a life of conflict with his creatures. But even after all that conflict... He could have said, I'm done with you all. I'm done with you people. I'm out of here. He doesn't do that. 
Instead, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before his betrayal, Jesus prayed to the Father with heartfelt words that should speak to your soul. Because it captures what Jesus Christ has taken on human nature, what it, what it really means. In Luke 22, verses 41 to 44, I'm going to read that for you. Just listen to these words. And he, that is Jesus, was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Think about that for a moment. This is the Lord of glory. This is the second person of the Trinity. He's setting aside his dignity that he deserves. And he is, in, and he is agonizing over what he is about to experience. As it says in verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus was about to drink the cup of God's wrath. And he knew this was coming. This is, new. This is why he took on human flesh. He knew it was coming. And this little baby boy's purpose was to suffer. To feel a level of pain that no human being could ever endure. And even while he's drinking the cup of the Father's wrath, being tortured by his creatures, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what you do. For they don't, they don't know what they do. Can you imagine that? Brothers and sisters, this is not arrogance. There isn't any conceit here. This is cosmic humility. This is cosmic humiliation. But at the same time, it's eternal love. And it's a perfect love. How do you not bow at Jesus' feet and give him glory? Well, in that, the, the Father and the Holy Spirit, he made sure Jesus would receive the glory that was due to his name. Look back at our text in verse 9. He said, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Christmas is not about he who gets the most toys wins. And I'm not just talking about the kids. <laughs> we as adults do the same. What did you get? It's also not about whether you were naughty or nice. Because we were all naughty this year, whether you received a gift or not. But if you think about that sentiment of being naughty or nice, what does that say to the poor kid who doesn't get a present under his tree this year? Is that really what we've turned Christmas into? Is that really what it's all about? In fact, people who hate Jesus and call him arrogant, they love this type of Christmas that doesn't have anything to do with Christ. They love that. But you see, Christmas is about exalting and praising the one and only king who became a baby. Even those who call him arrogant now will one day bow at his feet and they won't be denying the true meaning of Christmas then. They will be bowing their heads in shame as they confess Jesus as Lord anyway. And even then, I don't know whether they will truly acknowledge Jesus' humility at that point. They'll be forced to their knees 
before his glory. But as for you, dear brothers and sisters, the Lord has taken away your shame. The light of the world has shined into your soul. You know that the true meaning of Christmas is about exalting Jesus' name. The Father has given him a name that is above every name for this purpose. Your humble king deserves your praise and adoration for the humiliation that he endured for you. He took upon himself a human nature just like yours because he loved you from all eternity and knew that you could never endure the humiliation that you know you and I both deserve. Right now, uh, Christian brothers and sisters who are in prison overseas, they're, they're grasping at this truth tightly in their souls because they know that they'll be bowing at Jesus' feet soon. And when they do, with love and adoration on their lips, they will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And they will be embraced with the words, Welcome home, good and faithful servant. That's a wonderful promise. And that's a wonderful promise that you possess. You possess that same hope. So I'll close with this. With all this hope, exalt Jesus' name today on every Christmas for the rest of your life and every day that you have breath. He is your humble king. He's your humble king. Adore him for setting aside his dignity. Praise him for his humiliation and love to exalt him. Your humble king deserves nothing less. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for sending us your son. That he would humiliate himself. That he would live a life in subjection to all the evils of this world because you chose to love us before the foundation of the world. We thank you for your love. We praise you for your love. We exalt you, Lord Jesus, this day for what you have done. And Lord, may, as we, may we as your people exalt your name even in the prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.